Welcome to Muslims Doing Things, a podcast about extraordinary Muslims and their career journeys. Today I have Lorraine Ali. And Lorraine, what do you do? I am a television critic for the Los Angeles Times and a culture writer. And I write. I write a lot. I write all the time. That's what I do. <laughs> And first of all, I'm really excited to talk about where we met, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute because me and Lorraine surprisingly met a decade ago and then ran into each other four days ago, but that's, we'll get to that. The point is, is Lorraine, let's talk about your background. You're Iraqi American. Were you born in America? Let's like go through the story of Lorraine up to what it took to become a freaking television critic. Well, I was actually born in Los Angeles, California. I am a native Angelino. Um, my father is from Baghdad. He came here like in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, so I grew up kind of uh, between, what do you want to say? Iraqi culture, 70s pop culture, 80s pop culture, <laughs> the valley. I grew up in the valley, as you can probably hear. Um had a, that's a, it's a long leap from where I was born to where I am now. But um, I'll put it this way. I had always known that I liked writing and I had always really liked music and pop culture. So initially when I got into writing, I was a music critic. That's how I came in, covering the LA music scene, the local music scene. And I did it for like local weeklies, like the LA Weekly um, you know, getting paid like nothing, waitressing at night, that type of thing, and um, kind of built up my career as a music critic. And there weren't a lot of women doing it. And there certainly weren't like Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, like we weren't there, right? And then uh, it, um, as, as things rolled along, I was with Newsweek as their music critic. I had made it into Newsweek. They hired me. They moved me up to New York for that job. And then, you know, 9-11 happens and the Iraq war happens and I start writing more and more about, you know, Arab American issues, Muslim issues, my own family in Baghdad, how worried I was. And uh, I kind of expanded into a larger culture writer at that point, then started at the L.A. Times 10 years later. And I've kind of done everything there. I was their music editor. <laughs> I was a culture writer. But now I'm the television critic. And I kind of use television as like a filter to cover culture at large. Yeah. And we will definitely talk about that because it's definitely a medium. And we're, we're at a really interesting time where things are emerging. Um, Rami was on the show last week, which, you know, yes. you have opportunities to talk about Rami, Mo, and, and, and truly how television now is kind of propagating this new larger image, this image of nuance instead of kind of this, you know, veiled monolithic and inaccurate representation of all things brown, be it Muslim, be it anything else. Um, but anyways, let, let's let's peel back before we get there. So you grew up in the Valley, um, Ardaki father. It's funny because my, my dad came here in the 60s as well. We talked about this. So um, yes. he spent more of his life, he spent more of his life in America than in Baghdad at this point. And mm -hmm. so you, you grew up in the Valley with um, an Arab parent and an American parent. The community was very small, I can tell, from, tell you from firsthand experience. So what was that like, um, did you go to school in the Valley? Did you go to college in the States? And kind of how did you reconcile these identities? Well, there were, like, there were no Iraqis here. Yeah. I mean, there, was, there was no community, <laughs> right? And, and it's not, there was a mosque um, in the Valley, okay. but my father wasn't particularly, I, I, I don't want to say he wasn't practicing, but um, it's a different generation. You know, gen generationally, he wanted to 
appear more American. You know, he wanted to, and he also, you know, didn't see himself as, um, how do I say this? He always said, my relationship with God is mine. Like, I don't want, you know, uh, an imam telling me what to do. I, you know, that type of thing. I think it was a, it was a product of how he grew up in his own family. So, right. I mean, you're you, you know, like I, generationally, because- right? Well, not only generationally, I, I wrote a thesis about this or a paper or something a long time ago. Um, when he was being raised in Iraq and around that time, architecturally, Iraq came into money in the 30s, right? That's when they took the oil and privatized it and there was monarchy and they had all this cash. And what they did to kind of um, show their status was they used architecture, Western architecture particularly. Walter Gropius, Bauhaus, Le Corbusier. So you have these incredible, incredible architects, Frank Lloyd Wright, building things in Baghdad. So what happened with our father's generation is that they became very proud um, and and being Western facing and being better than the West at things the West did was actually like, you know, a source of pride for many folks because they had the best architecture, better than the West, the architects of the West, so on and so forth. And the way that this actually evolved through the 50s and 60s um, was it then turned into like pan-Arabism, right? Where they yep. became very proud in their identities and That's said, right. we don't need your Western culture. We can integrate it into our own culture. But really this overall Arab identity matters more. The only reason I'm bringing this in as somebody who's never met your father, God rest his soul, peace, is because um, I think that his form of identity was very different than how we view identity today, which is a form of rebellion. <laughs> Assimilation exactly. was a very different, you know, output. It was exactly. I mean, assimilation was totally what he wanted. And there was oftentimes, um, sometimes he wouldn't use his name when he would make his real name, when he would make reservations places. Cause he was, you know, he knew like about racism. He knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Plus there's like, you know, when he, at that time too, there was, you know, um, the, you know, 67 war. And so the idea of Arabs and Muslims was starting to come into, you know, Oh, they are the other. But but back to my, you know, growing up and my dad and all of that. Um, so I I grew up mostly in an all Jewish neighborhood in the Valley. So it was even more in terms of just like, you know, all the different cultures that we were contending with. Um, you know, and my mother is Anglo. She's a California girl, grew up here, French Canadian roots. So, and she's Christian. So, you know, we had everything going on there. You know, we had the Muslims, the Christians, the Jews, we had everybody. Um, so I don't know, you know, you say like, how, how do you, how did you move between that? Well, what, what else do you know? Like, that's, that's what I knew. Right. So know? like it was normal um, on summer vacation to go to Baghdad, you know, you went, then, you went as a kid. Yeah, I did. More because, than once. Often. Uh, we went twice, and it was in the 1970s um, as a little kid, and uh, got to see the family and hang out with the family. And we would take, you know, w- what we would do is we would hang out in Baghdad with the family, and then my dad would get really irritated with them because, you know, it's family. I have like 35 first cousins. It's a crowded little house, and um, we would drive up to northern Iraq to get away. You know, so we would take that trip all the way up, you know, into the mountains, big, long car ride in a car with no air conditioning in, you know, <laughs> frickin' July or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's how I knew about that. That, you know, that's, I didn't grow up there, but it was the place we went on summer vacations to see my family. And, you know, it was, um, 
that's how I knew it. You know, that's how I thought of it. And then we would have relatives come over once in a while. You know, he was the only one who came to the U.S. So he was it. It's like my father. Yeah. Okay. Same thing. So early wave. So, you know, they would come over. And the most awesome thing I remember, though, that is that his family business, his, you know, brothers and his dad was a shoe factory and they would make shoes. And they would send us a box like every year of shoes. <laughs> so cool. Oh my God. I mean, they were like, my mom was like trying to hide them because they were horribly outdated. They would be like big candy apple red platforms, you know, and this women were wearing those at the time, right? And there wasn't just, you know, there wasn't like the whole movement of like shoving women in the background, but like, I love those shoes so much, those patent leather, like candy apple red platforms. When I think of Baghdad, oddly, that's what I think of. <laughs> I, I like, I love that. I love that so much. And it's funny because we we would go back to Erdok a lot as kids, which is a very unique experience. Um, my mom would really literally hustle our way in. This was when Saddam was the leader of the country. There was a lot mm-hmm. of fear and risk. Um, the borders were closed. We would like drive through Jordan. And my mom, who's super anti-smoking, would just go to Costco and buy tons of cigarettes and and bribe the border guards to let us in because she didn't want wow. them to draw blood. They draw blood to make sure we didn't have AIDS. That was just the best practice. It's a sanctioned country. When, wow. How? So many questions. Yeah. Nevertheless, right? Like a sanctioned country that wasn't getting syringes in and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, um, that – so Aww. it's Saturday morning, guys. My kids uh, just figured out I'm home. So we may be hearing them. But nevertheless, um, my, my memory of Baghdad also has – fashion plays a big role. Because before oh, – yeah. when Saddam was there, the internet was not, right? So there was a very um, – vernacular local idea of fashion. And as social media has popped off, I follow a lot of Iraqi TikTokers and I'm like, yo, these people are like flyer than anything I've ever seen. Like they're putting me to shame, right? So it, it, that it is an interesting journey in terms of fashion and how fashion has evolved with social and kind of an understanding of how to contextualize their own fashion with like the world. Um, but nevertheless, yeah. so when, when you're writing, did you have the clarity that you wanted to walk, write about rock in general? Or were you like, I just want to be a journalist? Because when I, I mean, I'm sure I wanted to be everything at some point in my life. And at some point I wanted to be a journalist, but I didn't have clarity. I was like, I want to be a journalist. My parents were like, cool. Okay. Tell us how you plan to do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, because, you know, like, it's, I didn't really think I want to be a journalist. I knew that I loved music a lot. And I knew the local club scene really well and the local music scene really well. And I just it always resonated with me. Um, even when I was a little kid. I mean, it's just it just was what I felt. And then I knew that I love writing. So I, I put the two together. And it, it's almost like, it's hard to explain, but it was like, it was naturally happening. You know, um, it wasn't like I, from the time I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. It was like when I put the two together and they let me publish, you know, something at the LA weekly, I was like, Oh, this is cool. Like, I like doing this. I can express myself this way. Um, you know, and I think music is also, in a certain way, it's all up to interpretation. It's very non-literal. And I really love that as well. So yeah, I don't know. You know, it's funny. People ask me that all the time and I just did not, I guess somewhere deep in me, maybe it was in there, but I didn't really consciously think I want to be a music critic. I want to be a journalist. I just followed that path, but I pushed like a I can't say that word on here. I pushed and pushed and pushed. I mean, the one thing I was like, I was like determined to get my voice out there. It was more about my voice and my perspective than it was about becoming a journalist. 
you know, it's so interesting you bring that up because I was, as I was going through my, in my head, the motions of becoming somebody who covers music, I was like, okay, you could probably be somebody who's very good at music. Who's like, okay, they have particular skill or you could be somebody who infuses culture into it. What was your journey? And at what point did you realize the power you had and how did you manifest that? I think, you know, when I had started with the smaller publications, um, writing for free, it was not about, I, I don't think that I felt I had much power. Um, it was more about my passion for it, my love for it. But um, I think once I started getting published in, you know, outlets like Rolling Stone and Spin, and then people would start to talk to me about, I want to argue this point about, you know, what you wrote about whatever Wu-Tang Clan or, you know, what you wrote about Pearl Jam or whoever it was. Um, and then often in those circles, it was guys and they would almost always, especially, you know, South by Southwest, when I would go to those festivals and stuff, I would be the only girl standing there unless somebody's girlfriend was there. And I remember, you know, one particular time, everybody like talking about something in a circle and literally like squeezing me out of the circle. And I was just like, boom, <laughs> I just came in and I'm like, yeah, in that, you know, in that cover story I wrote for Rolling Stone, this is what I said. And you could feel like, whoa. And then I thought, wow, okay. So now, you know, now I realize like what I'm doing actually, um, has some power in terms of like, it's giving me some agency here that I didn't feel like I had before. But I think it was later even than that, where I started to realize what I was writing was affecting people. Um, and I think that came with a lot of the, you know, Muslim American um, pieces I wrote that, you know, 9-11 and uh, about Iraq war. I think that's when I started to realize, okay, that, you know, people, there's people out there that are like, starving to hear this. Um, and people that don't want to hear it and are writing me letters, you know, writing me emails where they like want me dead. So I was like, it's, it's making it, it's making a difference. <laughs> and it's so fascinating because to be a critic, you have to have a perspective to have perspective. There's obviously, there's not, obviously there could be like, you know, an, a positive point of view and a negative point of view. Um, and how did you, first of all, is there anything that you wrote? where you were like, ooh, maybe I missed the mark on that. Like, I wish I walked that back. Maybe that was a little bit too forward. Or how do you deal with regret is my question. Or do you have it? You know, when you, when you have to be the person who sets the tone on something. Um, it's interesting. I'll obsess about something that I've written and I'll think about it and I'll be like, ah, you know, I could have put this in there or that in there, but overall big regret, no. And it's funny that um, you would think that would come with it. Um, there's very few pieces where I really like regret. And oddly enough, they're like little reviews. They're like record, you know, or it's a review of something where I just totally didn't get it. Like Watchmen, you know, I just didn't get that series when it came out. I was just like, what is going on? You know, I was completely confused. And then going way back, one of my early reviews of the Breeders album, I was like, yeah, this isn't very good. And I remember having a conversation with Jonathan Golden. He's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, what do you mean? And now I'm like, oh, yeah, I missed the mark on that one. Um, I, you know, here it is, though. Like, I, I, my opinion and how I feel about things changes, right? 
like it changes and particularly with music, but also television. I mean, those type of things, you know, are fluid to me. So I don't feel like I made the wrong call at the time. That's how I felt. But Later, you know, and, and things that I've written that are more what people would consider politically charged or hot button topics, um, <laughs> you know, I don't have um, regret about that. But there were times when I got such pushback and then I was not backed by the publication I was at that I started to think, am I doing something wrong? You know, I really, um, I, I had a, like a year and a half where I really was like, what am I, am I pushing this too far in the wrong direction? Um, and you know, I was losing work. I lost a job. I, you know, there was a lot of things going on and I didn't have the support of that publication at the time. And it made me really question, like, am I on the right track here? And should I just shut down what I think? Am I... Is, are my have my opinions brought me too far uh, over an edge? You know, it's so fascinating because you're paid for your opinion, right? Like you, you yeah. are effectively you are the ultimate influencer. You are paid to influence, yeah, right. Yep. Like, so, yep. so, so, would you, in terms of these really big moments, um, what is like a sphere of writing? I know you talked about identity. Was that one of those moments where you stopped and said, am I on the right track? Have I pushed this too far? Like, can you walk us through one of those moments where you maybe be wondered if you went too far and then realized, no, you were probably just ahead of the curve? Well, I, um, there's been a lot of those, um, There's things I'm battling in my head, like whether I should talk about this or not, because it was like, you know, they were, they were things that happened um, that very early on before, you know, people were getting doxxed before, you know, uh, there was, you know, armies of trolls on social media. It was the very beginning of that. Right. And I wrote a piece about um, Ayan Hirsi Ali and the embracing her, um, and I think she had written the book, what was it called? Infidel? I can't remember. But, you know, I had I had reviewed that book and I found it like incredibly insulting. Um, do you know much about her? I sure do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I found it incredibly insulting and nobody was really talking about that. Um, it was just like a given that she was a poster child for, you know, how bad, you know, Islam is and nobody would question it. And so um, I reviewed it and I also kind of interviewed her and I, I, said that I was like, this is, you know, um, biased. It's, you know, it's not, it's, it's uh, basically said that. And this was Newsweek and I wrote it in Newsweek and, um, you know, I got a ton of the, the organized Islamophobes. Um, I realized then there was a, there was an organized effort of Islamophobes across campuses, whatever it is, kicking back the media. They, you know, it flipped the switch and they went into action. Um, and, you know, I didn't get back up for my publication. So that's when I thought, hmm, you know, um, I'm sorry, I forgot what the question was, but that's when I thought, oh, okay, like I, you, maybe I didn't do this right. You, you um, went too far, you know, it's But I didn't. I look at it now and I'm like, no, you else- did the. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yes, thank you. Thing. And I was like, yes. but so you had validation thought- in 2022 for me. Thank was- you. Really, but- that work was fed deeply into the Orientalist narrative. 
Um, yeah, but and, the community counterwork. No, but the, I did not also have the, a lot of backing from the community. It was silent. Everybody was scared. It was like a really horrifying, scary time. And I did not have the backing of the community. You, I felt so alone. And I, I don't know how else to put this, but it was like, you know, I am doing what I know is right. And I don't have a choice to say something else. It's not in my head. I don't have a choice to say something else as a person who has gotten forward with their opinion, whose work is that this is what I have to say. And so, you know, you know, I, yeah, it felt like going it alone for a long time. Um, And now it's fantastic when I hear, you know, especially younger journalists coming up to me who are, you know, Mina or whatever they are saying, Oh my God, you're the OG. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm old, but thank you. (laughs) No, I, I, it definitely resonates. Um, I've talked about this in a few other episodes, how like the, the the narrative of Muslim Americans has shifted, right? Like 2000s to 2010s was like, we are not terrorists. That's all we have to say. We have nothing else to add aside from we are not terrorists. And I think that was also the time when you saw, and I I don't think I've discussed this, but as I think through it, that's when we kind of reflected that politically. And so people, when Muslims started voting and there was kind of a push to vote, it was to vote Republican, to vote for George Bush, right? And like to kind of just really prove that we're we're one of you. Um, And in 2010, it was like, oh no, like we're really good people the imperfect Muslim was not a concept and, and that evolved to like, we're also beautiful and we can sell things. And now we're in this era of like, Hey dude, you're the OG. Like you called things out when we were talking about how we <laughs> needed to like vote for George Bush to like right the wrongs in the middle East. Cause we were so American and you're either with us or against us. And we're clearly with you, you being this like effectively larger orientalist narrative. Right. Um, so first of all, hats off. Um, if I was on social at that point, I would have definitely, uh, you know, been all for you, but though I'm a decade or however long late. Yes. Well done. Um, And so to kind of pull back to the tactical, you're writing pieces, you're doing it for free. um, You start getting paid probably a little bit. And then do you like get picked? How does that work? Like, do you get picked up by, was Newsweek your first like full-time job? Uh, Oh, um, Newsweek was my first staff job. It was like waitressing, was staff job and then Newsweek. And in between was a ton of freelance. So I had um, started working my way up, like sending out like all my clips and basically the reviews I had done, you know, for free to Spin, to Rolling Stone, to Option Magazine at the time, which was, you know, um, alternative. It was alternative music magazine when it, there really was an indie music scene. That's kind of how I came up in that. And I think really what happened is... Um, it was at a time when there was a lot of women coming up in the indie scene, whether it was Bikini Kill, um, you know, Paul, um, whoever it was, Alanis Morissette, uh, Liz Fair, and there weren't a lot of women writing. And so the LA Times came to me at that time, Robert Hilburn, and brought me on as somebody that started writing regularly for them. Um, and that, that was really kind of like my first big mainstream breakthrough and it wasn't on staff. I was just a regular writer for them. So I did cut my teeth kind of at the LA times. And I, I remember writing about like Snoop and all this stuff that was very nineties. Um, but I was into it, you know, and, um, you know, some of the people too, I knew like coming up in the LA scene, like I knew Perry Farrell, I knew James Dix, like I hung out with them. Like I knew people that, you know, were kind of um, precursors to this scene. So I had deep knowledge of it already. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just kept, um, 
I wrote like crazy for the LA Times. I did tons of live reviews. Um, for Option, you know, I interviewed Nirvana. I interviewed, I've interviewed like many people now that people are like, oh my God, you got them. But I interviewed Pearl Jam, which was impossible to get interviews with them. That was a little later, but, um, you know, so many, you know, Suge Knight, I, I interviewed so many people at that point. Um, and uh, Salt and Pepper, it was like, it was fun. It was great. And it was just like, you know, it was really nice because you'd walk in the room, especially with the women. They're like, oh, thank you. My God, there's like another woman here, you know. <laughs> and then with the guys, you know, I just remember like, depending on who the band was, just like walking in and just wearing super baggy clothes, no makeup, pulling my hair back. I'm like, I'm good because, you know, often you're the only girl in the room except for who, whoever, you know, groupies are, or whatever you want to call them. And like um, just having to just, you know, I'm overdoing it in a way of like, OK, but yeah, so um, then I freelanced for a while and I built up my reputation and built up my reputation and I became a columnist at Mademoiselle. And that's actually where I wrote one of my first um, pieces about being Muslim and Arab because I was talking about kind of, it was before 9-11, but I was, you know, things were ramping up. It was, you know, there had been the Oklahoma City bombing and people had blamed that on Muslims really early on and Arabs. And of course it was not, right? So, um, you know, I'd started kind of writing some things like that, but um, just built up, you know, my, all my music writing. And then the Newsweek critic job came up, the staff job in New York. And I, threw in for it and I got it. Um, and they moved me out there. I think it was 2000 or 2001. It was right before nine 11. And, um, yeah. And I lived in New York, did that job. And I was in New York during nine 11. Actually I was in Cairo, um, on nine 11, but, um, that's a whole other story. That was crazy, but yes. Um, so that's how I ended up at Newsweek. Was that a super long answer? <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. Cause I mean, so, so you're writing all these pieces, you end up at Newsweek. Um, you're clearly very good at getting in front of artists. You're clearly very good at like getting them to tell you cool things and people want to read what you write. And at Newsweek, um, does, do you effectively cover music for the next decade before you move to the LA times? Uh, I start out with music and I do that for quite a while. Um, I got Jay-Z, which was like one of my favorite interviews. Um, and then I started writing more about larger cultural things, whether it was, um, you know, I remember writing about uh, this kind of, this kind of religious right movement of, um, of, what do you want to say? Young people, you know, staying, abstaining from sex until they were married. So I wrote about that, like a cover story about that cultural stuff. Right. But mostly um, when I was branching out, it would be like um, trends or something like that. But then I started writing a lot about like one of the first pieces I wrote um, was about the, the Muslim, you know, what it's like to be an Arab and Muslim comedian, you know, around 9-11. How do you make people laugh right now? You know, when your name is, you know, Abdul and you're getting up to tell jokes about it, how do you make people laugh right after 9-11 when they're terrified of you? That was one of the first pieces. So, yeah, I started branching out more like that. And then um, by the end of Newsweek, I was writing culture stuff widely. So then I was writing more about culture by the time um, I got to the L.A. Times. So I was 
when I say culture, it's anything really. It's really hard. Like I write about media, how media yeah. covers things, wrote about the rise of Al Jazeera. Um, you know, I wrote a lot about um, my own family, what I, my concerns about them in Iraq and then the refugee crisis. Um, but then I would also write, you know, like writing pieces about the power of um, music psychologically, you know, things like that. I would just kind of do all sorts of different things. And that was a lot of freelancing in that time period. Yeah. You know, I wrote for the New York Times, GQ, um, yeah. and did a ton of hits on television, like all the VH1, you know, whatever those VH1 things were, like where they would interview you about the history of music. I did a lot of those. <laughs> do you pretty much get passes to anything in that position? Are you like, hey, Jay-Z's in town and somebody gets you a pass? Is that how that works? I'm curious. Oh, well, you know, if you you set up, if you it depends on whether what you're going to do. If you want to review the show, um, you contact the publicist and say, hey, I want to review this. And if you want to interview them, you contact the publicist for the record label um, and or, you know, with television, with the studio or the platform. Hey, I want to interview fill in the blank, Rami, um, you know, and that's how it happens. Um, you can't like really just show up, you know. <laughs> hey, I'm with the times. Hey. <laughs> Hey there. Hi, it's me with the earbud that doesn't fit. Can you let me in? Um, so yeah, no, you kind of have, but after a while they get to know who you are. And if you, you know, they know, they know to trust, you know, that you're going to do that. That's another thing. Like you have to be on the up and up because I've seen so many people come into journalism and like sort of abuse that in a way or, or not, or say they're doing one thing and do another and they don't last very long because you do have to keep these relationships. doesn't mean you have to do what they want you to do, but you do have to like be solid and stick to your word. And produce, right? Like at the end of it, you have to produce work that reflects the experience. Right. And like, oh, yeah. um, so, so that that's, and so by the time that you're there, at what point did you move to the LA times around what year was that? I think it was 2011. Right around when we found each other on Twitter. Yes, it would be. <laughs> that would be exactly. Yes, it would be. So in 2011, I don't think the listeners, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the pod funny enough because it was a really important thing at the time. <laughs> but I, I started TEDx Baghdad when there was like this big rise of TED with a few people. Me and Lorraine somehow got connected. She's like, I'm Iraqi and I want to go to TEDx Baghdad. And I was like, sure. <laughs> and facilitated for her to go to Baghdad. <laughs> That was amazing and was just like a seriously like a life changing trip. So thank you 5,000 times because <laughs> <laughs> and we, we didn't even talk about this. So I ran into her four days ago because we haven't seen each other for a decade. So it was awesome. But I'd love to kind of spend a minute just talking about that. Then we can actually like, I don't know why I'm centering your story around me, but I thought it was really interesting. You know, I'd go, go for it. This is your show. Yeah. So, 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 so I'm curious, like, tell me about that trip to Iraq. Cause at this point, so you went to Iraq as a kid, you're doing all this like music writing, but in reality, you're talking about like Hirsi's book and being a Muslim and how the representation, you know, maybe varies and whatever. And then you actually get an opportunity to, to go back home for this like piece of your identity that, you maybe haven't had the opportunity to like physically feel for decades. Yeah. I mean, cause our situation in my family was once my father died, um, we had lost a lot of contact, most contact with that side of the family, because as you, as you were talking about, you know, it's Saddam's Iraq at that point. Right. So, you know, by the time the war rolled around, we didn't know where anybody was. And 
you know, I had, we had lost most contact with everybody. And so, you know, I had spent years uh, and using Newsweek's resources to find them again. And that was part of my journey of like, huh. yeah. And so I started like I would travel to Jordan because somebody had gotten out and gotten to Jordan, hmm. you know, a cousin. Um, I traveled to, you know, I went to Syria, um, the Emirates. I just started going over to because I wanted to reconnect with them. I wanted because I felt like, you know, for both of us, you know, it's an identity thing for me, but also for them because like they're they're the place they've lived their entire lives is is obliterated, right? And so it was important for me to do this. And also um, I just had my son, you know, in 2003 and I'm like, I want him to know where he comes from. I want him to know his relatives. And so it was really important to connect that way. So by the time TEDx Baghdad rolls around, I have, I have, I have two uncles that are still alive, right? The one I have seen, you know, who had gotten to Jordan and to um, Syria for medical stuff. And he'd gotten out of Baghdad. The other one's in Baghdad, and this is my dad's youngest brother, and I have not seen him since I was a little kid. Um, and I would really, really, you know, he was my father's favorite. He was the baby of the family. And so, um, and I remember him coming to the U.S. a couple times. He speaks no English and just hanging out with him and having conversations. My Arabic's terrible and not knowing at all what each other were saying, but, you know like totally knowing what we were saying. So um, by the time TEDx Baghdad rolls around and you get me over there, thank you. Um, I, yes, I wanted to be there for the conference. F fantastic. But we were staying in what was the green zone, the international zone. That's where they put us for safety. And, you know, it was so frustrating because I kept trying to get in touch with my uncle and with my cousin who live with him to see him. And he lived outside of the green zone and trying to get out of the green. They couldn't get in. And then me trying to get out, it took me, I think we were there for like 10 days. It took me like six days to orchestrate it so I could get out of the green zone and see him. And how we did it is there was a trip that they were bringing all of us to, you know, to some fancy restaurant club outside the green zone. And it was super armed. We had, you know, a, a, a whole um, envoy of armed cars around us and, you know, bringing us to this fancy restaurant, right? Because as you know, or maybe you don't, I don't know people out there, the disparity in, in Iraq and, you know, Baghdad, like tons of money, you know, put into a $3 million club and then no electricity, you know, and no plumbing down the street and the potholes on the road. That's what it's like. It's corruption, you know, at its worst. Um, so we go to this club and I'm like, here's my chance. Like I'm outside of the green zone and I call one of my cousins. I, I get someone's phone there and I'm literally so desperate at this point. It's this, you know, it's a guy who's been helping us with the TEDx stuff. He's Iraqi. He's from Baghdad. I'm crying and I'm like, can you please just call this number for me? I don't have a phone. Ask him to pick me up. And he did it. And this guy, he, it's a long story. I'm sorry, but my cousin's husband is a known kind of politician in Iraq, which I didn't know. He comes to pick me up and you have to check your gun at the door. He comes in to pick me up and like, everybody knows who he is. Like, whoa, hello, blah, blah, blah. 
And he picks me up. We get in the car, gets his gun back, gun in the holster. And he's, you know, says a prayer before we leave. He's like, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, if you think it's strange, I'm saying a prayer before we leave, but I do this for my safety because, I, you know, they've tried to kill me several times. And there I am in the passenger seat, like, grand, cool. let's go. <laughs> so we go through several checkpoints. Um, so tense, so terrifying. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody. The guys at the checkpoints, I'm like, we're going to get killed. We get to my uncle's house finally after all this. This is, we're talking like 30 years I haven't seen him. And um, we pull into the courtyard and he's standing outside. And, uh, you know, I never got to see my dad grow old, but I, we pull in and I see him and I'm like, okay, there's what my dad would have looked like if he had had the chance to grow old. And it was just like amazing. It was amazing. And then I off and on spent the rest of the trip with them. Yes, I did my TEDx stuff. Thank you for getting me there. But <laughs> no, nobody's keeping track. Don't worry. <laughs> But it was like, you know, it was reconnecting with my cousins and there were things that they had kept of my dad's from when he visited there that they gave back to me, his briefcase. Oh One my of my goodness. cousins had his briefcase from oh like the 1970s. Goodness. It was just amazing with his initials on it. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. I literally like my, the hair, you made the hairs on my arm stand up. That, <laughs> that's like really incredible. I think that, I think that that whole journey uh, was just for many, for me too, as like somebody who's part of the diaspora, just kind of organize something there and like really motivating like people here to go over there, but also making a platform for thought leadership there was really cool. And actually, as I think about it, pretty synonymous with what I'm doing now. I think I'm seeing a theme in my life, but that's another story. <laughs> so like, hold on. I just had a breakthrough, but I'll Whoa. think about that when we're done. <laughs> so <Right>. anyway, <laughs> that that's incredible. And, and so you come back um, and you work for the LA Times. You keep covering music and culture. And yeah, I am the music editor yeah. at that point. The funny, just wait. The editor is like the head honcho. The editor is like yeah. I'm it? running okay, the music cool. section. Just wanted to make that clear. In. Anyhow, so yeah. you know, what's the quick thing you were going to say? Oh well, when I was in Baghdad, um, I did have a phone, but you know, it never worked. I couldn't. I had my phone, but it was never working. Except when we were at the checkpoint, it's dead silent. Everybody's all the cars are being funneled into this, you know, <laughs> and you have the windows open because it's hot. And uh, what happens? My phone goes off and, oh, I know, because my cousin had given me the phone and the ringtone is, it's sexy back. Like, who's got, who got sexy back? <laughs> and then I'm thinking, here's where my life as a music critic and music editor collides <laughs> with sitting at this deadly, deadly checkpoint in Baghdad. It was, it was nothing sexy about it, folks, for anybody wondering. Nope. <laughs> <Nothing> <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, that's so funny. And of yeah. course, yeah, that, that's only how it happens. Um, yeah, that's probably the only time that ringtone ever went off, actually. Mm. And so so you're it the was. head honcho, you're at the Times. Um, you continue to write. What's the transition from that to television? Was it something you sought after, or were they like, okay, this woman's talking about music, but actually she's talking about culture? We need somebody who's able to be this strategic and analytical at a societal level. When we talk about TV, she's our girl. The second part of that, yes, that when they 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 came to me to be the television critic because of those very things, because mm -hmm. I my scope is wide and because I don't believe anything happens inside of a vacuum, films, music, television, politics, media, nothing happens in a vacuum. It's all connected. So I've always written like that. And 
in between, you know, I'd been, I'd come in as music editor and then I moved over to writing. Um, and when I moved over to writing, it wasn't just music. It was about everything. Like I wrote a piece about American Sniper, you know, I wrote, I wrote a ton of stuff. I wrote Omar Sharif's, you know, an appreciation for Omar Sharif, all sorts of different things. I wrote about, um, you know, straight out of Compton, the film. I went on set with, you know, Dre and Ice Cube, everything. I was writing about everything. So when, but I also particularly was able to tackle um, politics and, you know, the feeling um, culturally of what was going on um, in, in whatever I was writing about. And they wanted somebody that could do that with television, particularly given where we were headed. Trump had not been elected yet, but it was it was clear, you know, the media and entertainment was playing a larger and larger role, um, whether you're looking at Stephen Colbert or whoever it is. And uh, and so they came to me and said, yeah, now we have, you know, the music critic position. I mean, sorry, the television critic position open. Do you want it? And I was like, I want it if I can go wide, if I can use it as a filter to talk about everything else that's going on in the world. They're like, do it. And so my very first official day as a television critic was on Trump's inauguration. <laughs> that was my first, that was my first official piece as the television critic. And I sat there, that thing felt like it lasted for about three weeks. It was what, eight hours or something, but oh good God. Yes. That was my first one. And that's where we started. Wow. That's um, one of those bringing sexy back moments. It's kind of like, oh. you know, these points that reflect much larger things. Um, so you become the critic. Is there a, a critic? Are there multiple There's critics? Two. There's there two, two television critics. critics. Um, Robert Lloyd is the other critic, and he's fantastic. Um, I I love him. We work really well together. Our, our tastes are so different, and our conversations about who covers what are pretty funny. Um, <laughs> do, do you ever pulse check against each other? You're like, this kind of sucks. Do you agree? And he's like, yeah. And you're like, okay, cool. I'm going to publish this piece. <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely. Or, um, you know, or the funny thing is, is like often like he'll, if there's something that's like a romance thing, you know, like a, a fun romance, it's like, I can't stand those and he'll do it. But if there's something like it's incredibly violent, <laughs> I mean, I'm like, yeah, let me in, you know? So it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, we constantly have conversations about, it, and he has got a great dry wit. Um, so he's fantastic. Yeah. He's been great. He's been great to work with. Yeah. No, that's wonderful to have that relationship before the whole world. Here's what you have to say. So you step into this role. Donald Trump is president. And, and this is like, this is when the tides start to shift. I will tell you distinctly, I fly a lot. I've always flown a lot for my career. Before Donald Trump was president, no matter what, whenever I was in an airport terminal, CNN was on. And the amount of coverage on just like terrorism, you know, capital T terrorism, which effectively, effectively means like any, you know, just so many things. They would just cover anything around Muslims in a particular light or the East in a particular light shifted. Literally the day that he was, he was elected, it shifted to more focus on whether it's like local terrorism in America or other things. But like, I literally saw the tides fully shift. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment that suddenly you're in the spotlight and you're accountable to talk about TV and how it relates to culture. So I'm curious in terms of your perspective on how you've seen things shift um, I also am curious to know of all of it, kind of what your favorite thing to write about has been and, and how you measure success in this journey. Um, 
I mean, the way in terms of just like shifting what I'm writing, I became a lot more interested in covering what was going on in Washington, you know, in terms of how television was covering that or reflecting it, whether you're talking about Veep or whether you're talking about how, you know, three different major news cable platforms, how Fox is covering it as opposed to CNN or MSNBC. I started looking a lot at that and also how Trump was using um, television to, you know, really uh, look, what was he? He was, you know, a reality show host. So what better or worse time to be a television critic than right then, right? So I did a lot of that. Um, I talked a lot about his, his work as a showman and his use of television and media and how the media was the media giving him more power or less power? Should we cover him or not cover him the way, we, you know, all those questions. And those, there were ample opportunities. When the Muslim ban happened, um, you know, I wrote about that, but from a personal um, level, because I had who I call my nephew, he's my first cousin's son, he got locked out. And he was the only, you know, Iraqi that had gotten here after my dad. And he got locked out when he was trying to go back to school. And I wrote a whole piece about it. And I got our video team down to the airport. Um, and we, he got in, but the LA Times were great about covering it and let me write about it. Um, I also wrote about bringing him to his first concert. He's a huge heavy metal fan. And I brought him to Coachella when Guns N' Roses opened and it was his first show. And I wrote about it. Oh my God. It was so fantastic. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I kind of got lost in there, but, um, I've written, I don't know, you know, I, as I move forward, I've just thank thankfully to the LA Times, um, whether because they were a mess at times or because you know they were under so they went through so many different iterations of ownership. So a lot of times there just wasn't a lot of oversight, and I was able to kind of write what I wanted to write. Um, and I just you know went really sort of um, wide with it. Um, but some of you were asking about some of the favorite shows or what were you, I'm sorry. Just your favorite pieces. Like when you look back, I'm sure that Coachella oh, piece with your nephew, but what Coachella are those moments piece. where you look back and when we talk about the biography of Lorraine, these are the pieces that we will highlight. Okay. Uh, one of my favorites was way back when, and it was for a magazine nobody remembers called Raygun. Um, and it was about Palestinian rappers and Palestinian American rappers in Ramallah. Like they would spend their summer in Ramallah. And it was right before the second intifada um, happened. I went over there to do, because Reagan had said, we want you to write first. What do you want to do? I'm like, I want to write about Palestinian American rappers on the West Bank, because they're taking this form of music of disenfranchised, you know, a disenfranchised population, basically pushing back against, you know, oppression, hip hop. Um, and they're, they're applying it to the way that, they or their families are being treated and are living in the West Bank. So I went and did that piece and I followed the, I found these kids. I followed them or I didn't even know that there was a story there. I'd heard there was, I found them when I was on the ground. I did that story. It got published and then it made it into, I didn't know that anybody really read it when it was in Reagan, but then it made it into um, the DeCapo best music writing for that year. Um, Nick Hornby had picked it to be in there. And so it's forever in the DeCapo best music writing book. Um, and that's one of my, I love that piece. 
Um, I love the piece about bringing Abdullah to Coachella, the Guns N' Roses piece. Um, I love my Jay-Z interview with Newsweek. It's not very long, but I just I loved that, you know, doing that. Um, uh, I recently, you know, I've written a lot of pieces recently um, for LA Times. I, you know, on the anniversary of 9-11, I wrote a piece about like why I hate being asked to write about 9-11. <laughs> and, they, and they printed it. Um, they put it out there. They published it. So that... Um, Oh gosh, there's so many. I mean, I think a lot of the ones about reconnecting with my family. Um, and then some, you know, some things are actually appearances on like radio and television where I talked about certain things. I actually cried on NPR about my uncle dying. One of my uncles dying. I cried on NPR um, when I was talking just about the experience of him dying, him fleeing Iraq, dying in Syria, and then trying to get his body back into Iraq to bury him in Najaf. It was just, yeah. It's not one of my favorite times, but it's it's marks a really huge moment in my career. There's so many times. I mean, I loved hanging out with Nirvana and Courtney Love. Um, you know, all of that. Uh, I love doing that straight out of Compton piece on the set where they recreated LA in the 1980s. Um, and I got to sit with, you know, Ice Cube and Dre while we're talking about it and watching it recreate. So I love that piece. There's so many. It's This is a hard question. How much time you got? Honestly, it's been <laughs> one of my favorite answers. I'm just kind of living through your experiences and it's, it's fantastic to know kind of it's impossible to calculate because I talked about how you measure success but if I think about culture being filtered through the lens of a woman an Iraqi woman a Muslim American woman somebody who has these perspectives and effectively that being the lens that that ends up imprinting so many people can't calculate it but that that's effectively what's happening right which is like very cool like you are the OG influencer truly um and, and I have two questions the first is what's next for Lorraine? And the second is where can people find you to be influenced by you and keep up with your journey? Um, well, thank you for saying that about success. That just like means the world to me. I mean, my own idea of success, I guess, is just feeling clean about what you're doing mm. and making a living mm. with it and it making an impact, you know, um, trying to make things better. I mean, really, honestly, that to me is success. And I feel sometimes I achieve it, sometimes I don't. And you know what? I'm going to just quickly pause, like in response yeah. to your heresy piece, like just the idea of me being a young girl who had a – stereotypes are the easiest way to make a prediction about somebody's behavior when you've never met somebody of that type. When that was the dominant media, pieces like yours that countered that created a counter for women like me who'd walk into the grocery store, I actually have this great story of my mom going into like a, a supermarket and somebody literally looking at her and being like, who's going to hire you with that on? And my mom handed her a business card and was like, I'm actually looking for a secretary. Right. So like moments like, that, like you know, if you're not as outspoken as my mother and the lady came back and apologized, but, but if you're not as outspoken as my mother, or if you, you know, to kind of create a, a counter narrative to the stereotype, like those are the intangibles that I'm talking about. And that's only for one particular piece. I'm, I don't have Abdullah's perspective as somebody fresh out of Iraq who 
as a man and Muslim from Iraq probably has his own set of stereotypes he's dealing with, regardless of the fact that he's probably brilliant and really just likes heavy metal. But anyhow, um, I I apologize for cutting you off. Continue. No, um, I, you know, and another piece, actually, I just want to go back to, I'm sorry. And I will wrap this up in a second. No, I don't want to wrap this up. I'm mindful of your time because I sent you an email (laughs) in the morning if I can. Um, I did a piece for the New York Times about um, two sisters who wear niqab um, and uh, in New Mexico, and I followed them around for like a week. And I just wrote about what it was like to move around and live in America in an American city when you wear niqab. And that was all that piece was about. And I say that was all that piece was about. So like, it's like a small, oh my gosh, that's was quite amazing. And um, those sisters were just phenomenal. And that piece really, I felt like shifted something in me to about understanding their world and understanding, you know, how they, cause they're American born raised here, like me, totally different, you know, um, experience. And of course I know that I know that as Muslims, Arabs, whoever we are, of course, everybody has an individual journey, but I think I learned a lot from that as well. And I love that piece. What is next for me? Wow. About 700 pieces that I'm on deadline for right now. Um, There's that. Yeah. Like tomorrow. Um, Yeah. uh, Pushing my son out there into the world as a productive human being. Um, And he's, you know, going into college right now. So I'm doing that. I'm thinking about adopting another pit bull. Um, I have one already. And um, I just want to, I feel really lucky but I've also worked really hard for where I am to be able to make a living off of my opinion and my voice and what I see as right and wrong um and I want to continue to do that as long as I can do it um you can find me uh at the LA Times um you know I'm on Twitter Lorraine Ollie and um don't do a lot of Instagramming but um, yeah, what else can I say? Just Google my name and actually finally the top results aren't going to be dominated by Islamophobes because the culture is flipping. And now my work's at the top. I will not add anything because the episode needs to end on that note. That is like the tone. That is the overall message. Like that is where we are. I'm going to just shut up and thank you, Lorraine, for coming. Brilliant way to end it. Thank you. This has been fantastic. And I love the sound of your kids in the background. Oh, thanks. (laughs) See ya.